But turn to Matthew in chapter 2. And so will I. And before we begin reading, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we come before you, and Lord, I confess my frailty, my own uh, inability to express any of the truth that is in this passage apart from the working of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, you have said that you have magnified your word above all your name, and that it will not return to you void. So I ask that it would go out with power, that the Spirit would wield it among us, and that we would see your glory, and the glory of your salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. December of 1997 was, uh, for me and my family, <clears throat> the Christmas play that will live in infamy forever. I will never be allowed to forget it, at least m not by my brothers. Uh, my 12-year-old self and my mom were, uh, you could say, the executive produce producers of this Christmas program at our home church. And my mom gave me a lot to do uh, in the planning and the production of this Christmas play. I wore a lot of hats. I wore the hat of set and lighting director, of um, makeup artist, costumer, coffee boy, um, and also a, a literal hat with some tinsel on it in the role of uh, wise man number three. And uh, my set consisted of what I could make out of cardboard boxes and duct tape and some craft paint. Um, for special effects, I stole the multicolored tree topper off of our Christmas tree at home and hung it over the stage uh, and, and gave an extension cord to my little brother and said, plug this in when you hear the word star. <laughs> and uh, we raided all the Goodwill stores in town for bathrobes for our costumes. Um, but anyway, none of these things are the reason that, that my family won't let me forget it. Um, the reason is, actually, my mom had decided that as the, uh, as the grand finale for our Christmas program, uh, I was to sing O Holy Night at the end. I did not want to sing O Holy Night because for reasons that were beyond my control, my voice was changing and I didn't have those high notes anymore at the end of this song. My mom said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. We've got this new electronic keyboard that I can, I can transpose the music. I'll take it down three steps. So the night of the play came, and everything kind of went off without a hitch until we got to that song, the grand finale at the end. And when the moment for my mom to push the down button three times came, you probably know what happened. I knew what was coming. She pushed the up button. So, so, this, so the notes that were already out of reach were now impossibly out of reach. And as I'm remembering, I can still feel the terror and the shame that would come over me every time we got to that part in the chorus through what seemed like 87 verses of that song. It was not pretty. 
quite painful, actually. But the people were nice, and uh, except for my brothers, they were not nice. There's, there's still not. Hey, Carrie, you remember that time when, when you tried to hit the high notes on Oh Holy Night? Yes, yes, I remember. Shut up. Um, but needless to say, nobody went home after that Christmas play saying, wow, that had to be the most incredible Christmas program I have ever seen. I mean, the detail and the, and the, the cardboard, I mean, it's just, I felt like I was there. <laughs> Nobody said that, because while I had poured my heart and soul into the, the finger-painted donkeys and the sheep with cotton balls stuck to them, um, the level of detail and, and accuracy <clears throat> was not really there. And it, it is attention to detail and historical accuracy that can lend realism to any work. And our text that we're looking at this morning, in Matthew's account of the visit of the wise men, sadly, most of our current depictions of this story are all too similar to my Christmas play. Lacking in detail, historically inaccurate, they're like a children's coloring book version of one of the most gripping and exciting stories that we find in the New Testament. Matthew included these details for a reason. And if we can pay attention to them and ask the right questions of this text, it can bring this ancient story to life. These were real people, like you and me, and when we see them that way, and we place ourselves in their sandals, we can feel all the more powerfully the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of what they witnessed. So let's look together at Matthew in chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The first detail that Matthew gives us that is truly crucial to our perspective and understanding of everything that follows is in this first verse, in the days of Herod the king. The days of Herod were dark days for the people of Israel. King Herod, also known as Herod the Great, although he should be known as Herod the Pretender or Herod the Usurper, had no rightful claim to the throne of David, either through birth or ancestry. He wasn't even a Jew, but an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. He rose to power at a time of civil unrest through the support of the Roman Senate and the backing of the Roman army. See, at this time in history, Judea was a vassal state of the Roman Empire, having been conquered 20 years before by... Uh, General Pompey in 63 BC. So Herod may have called himself a king, but he was really just a puppet of Rome. He was a brutal and bloodthirsty man who would stop at nothing to stay in power, even killing members of his own family whom he had suspected of plotting to overthrow him. And it is against this dark and shadowy backdrop that Matthew begins his narrative about the visit of the wise men. Now I want us to notice in verses 1 and 2 
and actually through, through the whole passage, that there is no mention of three wise men. Over the years, tradition has come up with the idea of three wise men based on the number of gifts that they offered. It could have been three, but it could have been more. It could have been two. We're not told. Suffice it to say that the image that most of us have of three men on camels uh, with crowns on their heads is not only um, uh, unsupported by the scriptures, it's highly unrealistic. For one thing, um, men of their position and station would never have made such a journey alone. They would have traveled as part of a a large caravan with uh, dozens, perhaps hundreds of personal attendants and an, an armed guard and um, so when this, this entourage arrived at Jerusalem, it was big news. Everybody knew. Um, let's continue reading, or rather read verse, verse 2 again. It says, when they arrived, they were saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We should understand that this verse where it says um, they were going around saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We probably shouldn't picture them tentatively knocking on doors and tapping people on the shoulder and saying, hey, has anybody heard of, of the, the, the king of the Jews? Because in the original text, in the original language, the word saying actually carries the meaning of to call out loudly for all to hear with absolute certainty. It's possible that as the wise men arrived at Jerusalem, there was a crier or a caller going before them saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. You can imagine that the inhabitants of Jerusalem, seeing this and hearing these things, were asking lots of questions. Who are these guys? Where do they come from? How do they know about this king And why are they here? These are questions that we would probably also like to know. Thankfully, Matthew has given us several clues in his text that with a little historical sleuthing, I think that we can determine with a pretty high degree of certainty who these men were, where they came from, how they recognized the star, and most importantly, why they had come looking for this Messiah King. The first clue that we see in the text is wealth or position, as evidenced by the gifts that they offered the Christ. Clue number two, we're told that they are observers and interpreters of the stars. The third clue is that we know they came from a land in the east. And the fourth and most significant clue is actually in the etymology of the Greek word that Matthew used to describe them, which is here translated for us, wise men. The original Greek word is magi, meaning a sorcerer, from which we get our English word um, magic or magician. Um, But just like we borrowed the word from the Greeks, they actually borrowed it from an even older culture, that of ancient Persia. And in Persia, the word magi was a job title for men who were um, priests of the Persian Empire. So what does history tell us about the magi or the magus? 
Well, we know, first of all, that they were members of the ruling class in Persia. So we see clue number one, wealth and position. We also know that the Magi were observers and interpreters of the stars, clue number two. We know that Persia, or modern-day Iran, is basically due east of Israel. There's clue number three. So from these details, I believe we can determine that they were not like in the song, We Three Kings of Orientar, but they were some of the last of the Magus priests of Persia. So now we know who they are and where they came from. Oh, by the way, also unlike the song, they didn't travel over field and fountain more and mountain, but the journey from Persia to Jerusalem was actually one across one of four months over one of the most um, inhospitable deserts in the world, the Arabian Desert. So we know where they come from, which brings us to the question of how did these men know that the king was going to be born? How did they recognize the star when they saw it? And how did they know what it meant? And why are they looking for him? This brings us to two key prophecies that we need to look at in order to understand who they were and why they were looking for the Christ. The first prophecy prophecy is recorded in the book of Numbers. It's known as the Oracle of the Star given by a man named Balaam about 1,500 years prior to the Magi's visit to Jerusalem. His prophecies are also recorded widely throughout the ancient world And it is highly likely that the Magi would have had access to them. Balaam is a bit of an enigma. We don't know a lot about him. We know that he was kind of a a freelance prophet for hire. Not a Jew, but a Gentile, and actually an enemy of the Israelites. Nevertheless, God spoke through Balaam and his donkey. But that's another tale. See what I did there? Okay, sorry. The oracle of the star goes like this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. So from this ancient prophecy, we see a star that heralds the coming of a king, and we see a scepter that signifies his rule over all creation. This oracle indicates that the star would be very, very unique. First of all, we see that it will arise out of Israel or over Israel. Which means if the Magi saw the star rising over Israel from their home in the east, it was rising in the west. Only stars don't rise in the west, they rise in the east which made this star unique and different from every other star in the universe. They would have instantly recognized it. Now, there's also a reason to believe from this prophecy that the star may not only have been linked with the rising of a royal scepter by association, but also in appearance. That is to say, it may have looked like a scepter with a column of light trailing down from it, which would explain how In verse 9, the star indicates a specific house by settling over it in Bethlehem. 
Okay, so now we know why the Magi knew about the star. We know what it signified and how they recognized it. But we still haven't answered the most important question. Why have they come? Why are they here to find this Jewish king? The story is often told as if they were on some kind of diplomatic mission, that this was uh, some kind of political courtesy that they, were, that they were performing to come and visit this king. But politically speaking, Judea at this time could not have been more insignificant, aside from being generally despised by their eastern neighbors. So what was driving these men? When they saw the star and they recognized what it meant, what made them drop everything and make this long and dangerous journey to find the newborn king? For me, this is where this gets really interesting. Throughout the centuries of the Magi's history, we know that there were men who ruled over them with a title of Rab Magus. These men were revered as interpreters of dreams, the king of the Magi. We also know that about 550 years before this event takes place, there was a man who had actually saved all of the Magi from being wiped out by a king by interpreting that king's dream, who was then made king over the Magi. And interestingly, he was not a Persian, but a Jewish exile. His name was Daniel. This same Daniel... This same Daniel who miraculously spent a night in a den of hungry lions. His prophecies about the rise and fall of nations would have been studied closely by these men. But of all of Daniel's prophecies, the most significant one was his vision of the one who would be born king of the Jews. Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel in chapter 7. Daniel in chapter 7, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom shall not be destroyed. These men came not to find a king. They came to find the king, the great king above all kings that all nations would serve. And they came to worship him, to declare themselves his Subjects. So, how was this news received in Jerusalem? Everyone knew these men were there. They knew why they were there. What was their response? It wasn't the kind of partying in the streets response that you might have expected at news of a new king. Actually, in verse 3, we're told that all the people who heard the Magi and their testimony were troubled by the news. Remember in what context all of this is taking place in the days of Herod the king. For years, 
um, historians have assumed, um, based on different records, that um, the birth of Jesus took place five to seven years before King Herod's death. But actually, very recently, um, some historical analysis has uh, indicated that our timeline is probably incorrect, and the birth of Jesus should actually be moved up by about four years, which would put us within two or three years of Herod's death. Why is this detail important? Well, as a young man, and in his prime, Herod was a tyrant. But in his final days, he was a monster. A paranoid and evil old man, quite literally rotting away with disease, So when the Magi arrived at Jerusalem, the city's inhabitants were living under a reign of terror. The slaughter of the innocents that we read about later in this passage is only one of many atrocities that Herod committed during this time. So word had gotten to Herod that these men were looking for the one who was born king of the Jews, the rightful heir to the throne that he had bribed and murdered his way into. And he is troubled. Let's go back and look at verse 3 in Matthew chapter 2. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with this, with him. The contemporary English translation reads, When Herod heard about this, He was worried, and so was everyone else in Jerusalem. You see, when Herod was troubled about something, bad things happened. So even if the people did feel some excitement or interest at hearing about the birth of the king who was to come, they weren't going to show it because they feared what the consequences would be if they did. We read that Herod starts to believe that there might be some truth to the Magi's claim. And he decides to hedge his bets. Let's look in verse 4 through 6. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I wish I could have seen Herod's face when he heard this prophecy, especially that last part. Here he is, one of the most vicious, manipulative, wicked kings to ever live, and he is told that the one who is the rightful heir to his throne will be a shepherd to his people. What a contrast. What an image that we are given. This picture of the Messiah King as a shepherd is deeply embedded in all messianic prophecies. In fact, the reason that Bethlehem was so significant as a birthplace for the Christ was not that it was a little town. It was to emphasize his connection to the first shepherd king born in Bethlehem. For just as David, the shepherd boy, became a king, his descendant, 
the great king above all kings, would be born in Bethlehem to shepherd his people. In our modern American context, we, we don't often come across shepherds, do we? So the role, the significance of this metaphor can be lost on us. But what is the role of a shepherd? A good shepherd guides, protects, shelters, and feeds his sheep. In Isaiah chapter 40, we're told of this coming Christ that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads the nursing ewes. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I was honestly so excited to share this passage with our church family that last night felt like Christmas Eve. Um, I didn't sleep very well, but that's okay. I woke up really early and couldn't get back to sleep, so I went, I went down. I decided I was going to start a fire, and um, I stepped outside to get some firewood. And the second I walked outside, I literally stopped in my tracks because there in the eastern sky over my house was the brightest star I have ever seen. It was incredible. And I just stood there and said, wow. And I realized that what I was looking at was um, what, what we call the morning star, Venus reflecting rays from the sun. As I was standing there, within a few minutes, <clears throat> the pitch black darkness of the night began to change as the sun broke over the horizon. See, we're told throughout Scripture that this Jesus is like the morning star and that his coming, the brightness of his appearing, was the signal that the night is about to end. Let's continue reading. In verse 7 of Matthew in chapter 2, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. You can almost see the wheels turning in Herod's evil mind as he asks them, So, this, this star that you saw, how long ago was this? I mean, exactly how long ago did you see the star? He's trying to approximate how old the baby is that he plans to kill. I'm going to take a pause here while we're talking about the star, or while Herod is talking about the star. I'd like to point out something that is often missed. <clears throat> See, every time this star is spoken of in the text up to this point, it is in the past. We commonly tell this story picturing that the wise men followed the star all the way from their homeland in the east to Jerusalem, westward leading, still proceeding. But that's nowhere indicated here. In fact, the text seems to indicate when the Magi say, we saw the star in the east, or when Herod says, when did you see the star? That the star had appeared on the night of Jesus' birth and then disappeared. The Magi didn't follow it to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem as the capital city of the Jews, as the most likely place to find news about the king. 
So really, they weren't here pointing people and saying, hey, see that star? That wasn't here a year ago. They were giving testimony to what they had seen. We saw a star. But the people were not convinced. Although Herod wasn't going to take any chances. In verse 8 it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So the wise men set out for Bethlehem. And I want us to notice something that I think is really one of the most tragic parts in this whole story. Not one person goes with them. You see, for the people in Jerusalem who were living in fear, it was far too easy to discredit the testimony of the Magi about the new king when the cost of seeking him was so high. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Can you imagine just how discouraged these men must have felt at this point? Here they have traveled for months across the desert in order to find the new king. And upon arrival in Jerusalem, not only do they not find the king, but they can find no one who has heard of his birth. And beyond that, everyone they talk to seems troubled at the very mention of his name. Surely they had to begin questioning in themselves. Are we crazy? Were the prophecies wrong all along? Did we come all this way for nothing? But we see them setting off for Bethlehem, this little town in the middle of nowhere, with no one to show them the way. And yet as the dusk begins to gather, God himself was preparing them a guide. Let's read verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Can you imagine this moment? As these guys are riding along, I imagine one of them says, I don't see Bethlehem anywhere on this map. I mean, Herod said to keep left at the big rock, but there are a lot of big rocks. I mean, it's getting dark really fast. Guys, what are we doing? And then all of a sudden, one of them says, wait, wait, wait. Do you guys see that? That's it. That's the star, the one we saw. I love this phrase. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. The overwhelming joy that the Magi are feeling here is the joy that comes from their knowing that the truth they had recognized from a distance is not only real, but it is for them. We see the star that had announced the birth of the king is now leading them to him. We're told that the star not only goes before them to Bethlehem, but that it directs them to the very house he is in by settling over it. What kind of a star does this? A supernatural one. I find it interesting here how 
This description of a supernatural light going before, leading, and then settling over a specific place to signify God's presence bears a striking resemblance to another supernatural light that we're told about in the Old Testament, one that no one had seen for more than a thousand years except once. On the night of Jesus' birth, we are told that when, <clears throat> when the angels appeared to the shepherds, they were surrounded by the blazing brightness of the glory of God. This was the Shekinah of the presence, the same pillar of fire that led God's people out of Egypt was burning that night outside Bethlehem. I like to think that if someone was far to the east that night, observing the night sky, if this Shekinah glory ascended with the angels when they left the shepherds, to someone in Persia, it would have looked exactly like a scepter rising out of Israel. I hope that this is exciting to you. I hope that you can feel the energy and the excitement of this final leg of the Magi's journey. I can imagine their camels being maxed out as they gallop over the hills leading to Bethlehem. And if you can see in your mind's eye that the star now is settling over a small house, Perhaps with a carpenter's shop out back. A man opens the door, and the light from inside illumines their faces. Read verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. The truth is that whether you live today in Lawrence, Kansas, or you lived 2,000 years ago in Persia, every heart of every person of every nation in the world longs for this. We were made for this, to worship the king. St. Augustine writes, you God, have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Jesus is the desire of every nation. He is the hope of every longing heart. So we've asked a lot of questions this morning. The last question I want to ask is does your heart long for him? As we consider the joy that these wise men experienced in seeking and finding and worshiping the king, know that this morning you also have cause to rejoice with exceeding great joy. For Jesus himself calls to you to find in him life and joy and satisfaction.
Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 through 17 say, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who desires the water of life, drink freely. This truth is for you and for me. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that as we have beheld the glory of your salvation and the coming of Jesus Christ, your Messiah King, your shepherd for your people, that our hearts would rejoice in him and that we would shine back the light that we see and share this good news. The King has come. We ask this in his name, amen.